Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 50 today. You know, in the Gospel of Matthew, ever since really the Sermon on the Mount, which we spent like 30 weeks in, you guys remember Matthew 5, 6, and 7, ever since then, the, the hostility has been growing towards Jesus, and we've noticed that. And that's really what this message is today. It's the danger of rejecting Jesus. What we're going to see is that Jesus warns the Pharisees that they are actually approaching a point of no return where it comes to their rejection of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know, maybe, you know, you guys have heard of the unforgivable sin, right? Now, I've run into people in my short time pastoring that are scared that they committed the unforgivable sin. They, they think, I'm so damaged and broken, I've sinned against God so much I cannot be forgiven, right? We're going to talk about that today a little bit. But you do have to know that there is a point of no return where it comes to rejecting Jesus Christ. There is a point that you cannot come back from. And Jesus makes a warning in this passage today about that. And we're going to cover a lot of ground. There's a lot of stuff in here. So rather than kind of being a shotgun blast of like one point, there's a whole bunch of different stuff in here. And we're just going to try to finish this chapter. Any one of these sections here could have been like a whole message in itself. But just kind of think of that as we're going through. That's kind of the main overarching thing is the the opposition, the rejection of Jesus Christ. There's a warning that you can go too far in your rejection. Then what I think that the Lord has for those of us that haven't rejected Jesus Christ, there's a a warning about attempting Christianity like in your own strength. Some of us think that Christianity is merely just a way to like clean up ourselves. And there's a strong warning about that in this passage here today. And so... Uh, That's kind of where we're going. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22. Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind, and mute, and he healed him, so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? Now, when the Pharisees heard it, They said, this fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, you remember this scenario that we're in last time? It was the Sabbath controversies. People were all mad at Jesus because his disciples were eating heads of grain on the Sabbath. They were trying to accuse him of of breaking God's commandments, but they weren't. They were just breaking the Pharisees' traditions. It's that setting. And then Jesus healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. And then you guys remember what they did after Jesus healed that man? They went out and they did what? They started plotting to destroy Jesus, like to kill him, right, after that point. And this is that same setting. So in that same setting, they bring a man to him that's uh, blind and mute, and he's demon-possessed. Now, this is, uh, you know, the way Jews used to exercise, they, Jewish, uh, you know, custom in these days, they had long elaborate plans for exercising demons. It was, they're kind of more like incantations or we would think of it more like almost like witchcraft in a, in a way. I mean, they're casting out demons, but it's like step by step. And so one of their things where they're, you know, the Jewish exorcist would say is you had to know a demon's name in order to cast it out right? That was a common thing. Like, that's why in that other passage in Mark, you know, what is your name? My name is Legion because there were many because the guy was possessed with like hundreds of demons, right? And he knows his name. So this case here, look at that. He says he's blind and he's mute. So to the Jews, this is an extra hard case, right? Because he can't tell you his name. And so this is pretty difficult, right? And so they bring this guy to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He heals him. An amazing work of God. Jesus, you see all through the scriptures, just at his word, he's able to cast out demons, right? And that same thing happens in the presence of the Lord today. You know, I've seen it in this church where we were talking about demonic possession one day. And this couple only visited this one day. And they were sitting and they had been up all night on drugs, obviously, and stuff like that. You guys remember remember that? And we're talking about demonic possession. These people were like, this guy and this girl were possessed. And God was at work in this place. They didn't stay the whole service. They got ejected right out of here. The spirit was so at work on them. Their conscience, whatever it was, 
was so at work. Another day we were talking about the false teacher, Benny Hinn in here. And this guy gets up and he's like, you shouldn't talk about Benny Hinn like that. And he leaves and he's all, and it's like, uh, you know, the spirit of Christ, it doesn't, it doesn't mix with demons, right? We ask Jesus to deal with any demonic activity here today. We would ask him to deal with that. We would say, Jesus, if there's any work of darkness in here today, that you would deal with it, that you would deal with it swiftly, that you'd rebuke and bind the work of Satan, right? That's how we pray a lot of times, because Jesus alone can bind the work of Satan, right? He heals him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And then all the crowd, they look around, they say, could this be the son of David? That's a term for the Messiah. You remember in 2 Samuel, God promised King David that the Messiah would come from his lineage. And so that was a word for the Messiah. The Jews would say, you know, the Messiah is coming. The son of David is coming. And now when they're asking him, when they're asking this question, could this be the son of David? It's because Jesus really didn't fit the description in all the ways that they were expecting that the Messiah would. They thought the Messiah was going to be a political leader, that he was going to come in and he was going to overthrow Rome. He was going to be a military force. And so they weren't, you know, so used to, they didn't quite recognize Jesus, you know. But they are starting to see him doing, you know, the demons are being cast out. The lepers are getting cleansed. The sick are being healed. And so they're, now they're starting to come around. They're starting to say, I, you know, the crowd is starting to shift at this point of the narrative. Then the Pharisees, look what they say. This fellow doesn't cast out demons except for by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebub, that's a weird word, um, but that's a, it's a name that it was a Philistine deity, and it means Lord of the Flies, right? And Lord of the Flies because, like, flies hover around excrement. And so this name Beelzebub originally was, like I say, a Philistine deity. Now, by this time, the way the word was used, it was just a slang term for Satan at that point. Now, so what these guys are saying is they're watching Jesus cast out demons out of people and do healings and doing all these miracles. And they're saying, you know what? Jesus is doing this by sorcery, by witchcraft, right? Now, you might say, well, sticks and stones, can, you know, whatever. But here's the whole thing is, if you're doing anything by sorcery, you're to get stoned to death, right? So the, the charge that they're making about Jesus here is it's a capital offense, you know. He's going around, he's involved in witchcraft. And so what that results in is with the Jews, if you're involved with witchcraft, you get stoned to death. That's it. Now, because they don't want to, you know, get rid of that stuff, right? It's demonic. So they're accusing Jesus of something that could get him stoned to death. Not stoned like Bob Marley, right? Okay, you guys quit that. Now, it's exactly what the religious rulers want is they're trying to get him killed, right? <clears throat> it should be said here that when you reject Jesus, you get more and more absurd in your stance against him. And you have to because there's overwhelming amounts of evidence everywhere that Jesus is real and that Jesus does things, right? There's overwhelming evidence. Just in this room alone, I know people's testimonies where I say there's no way except for Jesus Christ working there. There's, there's evidence all around you. Well, let me bring this home. If you're in this crowd rejecting Jesus Christ, you're going to have to get more and more absurd in your stance because you look around and you see the work of God, the Holy Spirit's at work here, right? You're going to get more and more absurd. Uh, and that's what these guys did. You know, they, he's casting out the devil by the power of the devil, right? Now, that's pretty ridiculous, right? I've heard some other ridiculous things when it comes to, you know, Jesus too, like, um, but this one's pretty ridiculous. I want to make a note too that as Jesus' follower... People might say ridiculous things about you also. They said about him. Now, Jesus is going to answer their accusation, verse 25. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, 
Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they shall be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man and then he will plunder his house? Jesus is responding to that accusation right there. And he says, every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. That makes sense, right? He's saying, okay, Satan has this kingdom set up on the world, right? If you're not following Jesus Christ and in the kingdom of light today, if you haven't given your life to Christ, you're part of the kingdom of Satan. That's, there's two kingdoms in this universe. You're either satanic or you're following Jesus Christ. That's the way the world works, according to God, according to the Bible, according to Christ. So what Jesus is saying is, if Satan has this kingdom set up, and I'm out freeing people from his grip, how, what kind of sense would that make, right? Um, why would Satan go and start freeing people from satanic possession? Doesn't, Jesus has given him the plain logic, right? And he says it in verse 25, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. Now, I want to make an aside point. This applies to your marriage. This applies to your family. This applies to everything. If there's a marriage that's divided against itself, it's not going to stand, right? If you have a husband and wife and they have two different agendas of what life's all about, it's not going to stand, you're unequally yoked. Your marriage is going to have tremendous amount of problems or else you're just going to settle into this comfortably numb sort of like ignore each other but live in the same sort of house sort of thing, right? Now, that's tragic. It's not God's design for marriage. Now, it's the same thing about a family. If you've got a family where you've got members of the family divided against it, it's not going to stand. Same thing applies to a city. Same thing applies to a church, right? If we have church members, if we have people in this church on different agendas, They've got their own ambitions. Eventually, it's going to collapse, right? Because everybody needs to be on the same page, right? And so that's just an aside that comes out of that text right there. And it's just such common sense. But you love Jesus, right? Because he's such a common sense teacher, isn't he? If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons, verse 27, by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? What he's saying there is there were Jewish exorcists that were casting out demons in those days. He says, you, you think they're divinely inspired? So he says, that, they'll be your judges, right? And really, I think the point he's making is, it's like, Jesus' track record with casting out demons is far better. You say that these Jews are doing this by the power of God, but you're just, you know, you, you obviously have an agenda against Jesus. You know, he's casting out demons 100% of the time. Uh, he doesn't need formulas. He doesn't need incantations. He just speaks a word and the demons flee. And he's, so that's what he's saying. He's like, your son's cast. There's Jewish exorcists that are doing this. So they'll be your judges. If I cast out demons by the spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. And then verse 29, he says, how can you enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods until he first binds the strong man. That's kind of like, you know, if somebody's going to come break into your house and you've got like a guard at the house, well, you've got to bind the guard first and then you can come in and plunder the goods. And so what Jesus is saying is, as Jesus has come and brought the kingdom of God, what he's doing is he's binding the strong man. He's binding Satan, right? And because Jesus is binding the power of Satan, people are getting set free from his grip. You know, that's what happened to my wife. That's what happened to me. We were bound in the power of Satan because we'd open the door to Satan through drugs and witchcraft and, you know, just music. It's not that I was into witchcraft or something, but like astrology and all these different things, I'd open the doors to all those things. And I was bound by the power of Satan. But Christ comes and he binds the strong man, right? Now, I want to make a note of this here too. You've heard people pray like that, like I bind this, I bind Satan when you're praying. You have to remember that only Jesus binds Satan. God binds Satan, right? So we're going to ask God to bind the work of Satan. I think that's a good way to pray is, um, you know, Father, we want to see some people get saved. We've got some family members that are messed up in drugs and alcohol or depression or whatever it is, or just self-reliant people that don't know they need the Lord, whatever it is. Heavenly Father, I pray that you bind the work of Satan 
over their lives so that they might be released from that, right? It's a good prayer. But Jesus is giving the principle here. Really, the main point of that is Jesus giving this principle that he comes and binds the work of Satan so that people can be set free. God alone can bind the power of Satan, and he did just that. The kingdom of God is surely upon you. Now, verse 30 and 32, <clears throat> Jesus' accusers' condition of their heart's going to come out here. Verse 30, he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Therefore, I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it'll be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, this is what we call the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin is in these two verses right here, these, these three verses. And we're going to take this kind of, I, I want to make sure everybody has a clear understanding of what this is before you leave here today, because I've heard all kinds of different things, you know, about what is the unforgivable sin, right? First of all, let's look at verse 30. Jesus is bringing those around him to a point of decisive, like they need to make a decisive choice. It's the crossroads, right? And so what Jesus says to this crowd, he wants everybody to understand clearly that you're either with him or you're against him, right? Notice what it says there. Very simple. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. There are two positions that you could be in in this world. You can be against Jesus or you can be for him. That's it, according to Jesus, right? Now, there are people today that will say something like, oh, I'm just kind of neutral towards the whole thing. Like, I don't, I don't hate Jesus, and, you know, I don't, uh, you know, but you Christians that are like serving Jesus, you know, you guys are weird, you know, so I'm not really like that. You know, I don't really like to lead, read the Bible and stuff like that, because that's kind of weird. Uh, but, you know, I'm not against Jesus, though. Heck, I'll even pop into church every now and again, you know? Well, Jesus would say, you're not with him if you're neutral. If you're neutral to the whole thing, the way Jesus Christ sees you today is you're against him. Now, that should be unsettling if you're playing the fence with Christianity, right? If you're, if you're riding that like, I don't know. Because Jesus calls you to be with him, and when he calls you to be with him, he calls you to be full on with him, you know? The idea of people just popping into church and then just doing whatever they do all week, those people are most likely are not Christians, right? They're not real Christians. Real Christians serve Jesus Christ every single day of the week. They, they're saved every day of the week. Jesus is on their mind every day of the week. They're in the Word of God, thinking about Jesus, serving Jesus. They understand that Jesus bought their life at the cross, and their life is about Him. And, and that's what they do with their life, Right? And the other people that are kind of wishy-washy and sort of neutral, Jesus says, you're, you're scattering. You're not gathering with him. You're actually scattering. You know, if you, if you think about it, if you're not pointing people towards Christ, you're actually driving them away from Christ. You know, that's a really bad place to be. And you can do that through your conversation with them. You ever been around a Christian that never says anything about Christ? And you're like, all you do is talk to me about worldly things. You're pointing me the other direction, actually. You're not even really pointing me towards Christ. You say you're a Christian. You're supposed to be a witness. You know, but actually you're witnessing more for like the latest movie that just came out that you think is cool. That has nothing to do with Christ, you know, and I'm not down on movies. They're good, you know, but you're either with him or you're against him. You're gathering people unto the Lord. You're gathering in the harvest. You're part of God drawing people to himself or you're scattering people. So he cuts through the whole neutral approach to Jesus right there. Jesus just cuts through that. You're with him or you're against him. Therefore, I say to you, verse 31, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. Now, that is a wonderful statement, isn't it? Isn't that, aren't you relieved that that statement's in the Bible right there? Oh my gosh, every sin and every word against every blasphemous, unholy word can be forgiven. Oh my God, thank you so much. Now, but... 
in that verse. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Now, what Jesus does here is he brings in a whole different kind of blasphemous sin. This is in its own category. It's its own type of sin. Because he just got done saying any sin can be forgiven, right? He just got done saying that. Any sin, any blasphemy can be committed. But now I'm going to bring in a whole new category. Except the blasphemy against the Spirit. That will never be forgiven. Verse 32, And anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. That's great news too, because you think of people like the Apostle Paul. Because remember 1 Timothy 1, verse 12 and 13? I thank Jesus Christ our Lord because he enabled me, he put me in the ministry, right? Although I was formerly a blasphemer. So this is good news for the Apostle Paul because he used to speak blasphemous words against Jesus Christ. And what, what this is even saying here is even if you have rejected Jesus Christ flat out and said, you know, he, I don't want anything to do. If you've, if you've blasphemed Jesus like Paul did, you were a persecutor. Paul says that he did that in ignorance. You guys remember that? Now, if you lived a life of ignorance about Jesus Christ, maybe you're sitting here today and you're ignorant about Jesus Christ. God can forgive you for all that. He'll forgive you. That's great news. But then it goes on, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him either in this age or in the age to come. He's telling the Pharisees that there's a type of blasphemous sin that they are approaching rapidly if they haven't already gone there, that it's, it's no, there's no coming back. No. I'm going to first talk about what this does not mean. Okay, notice the words there, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit. I have heard some people take this and say, if you talk bad about the manifestations in the, of the Holy Spirit in this church, then you're talking bad about the Spirit. No, no, no. People tried to, you know, there was, there was a movement in the church where people were barking like dogs on the floor and stuff like that. And, you know, people were saying, that's of the devil. And those people were coming back and saying, no, you're blaspheming against the Spirit. That's not what this means. If, if you're calling out some sort of work of the Holy Spirit and you're saying, I don't think that's the work of the Holy Spirit, that's not what this is talking about, right? This is, it's not speaking out against some questionable thing that man attributes to the Holy Spirit. You know, have you ever heard people say stuff like that or they'll say, don't touch the Lord's anointed and it's like that, they think that's like this card for them to say and do whatever they want and like no accountability, right? That's unhealthy and dangerous if you're not, under some sort of accountability and nobody can speak a word against you, you know what I mean? And that's not what this means. It also does not mean rejecting the gospel, right? Because Paul rejected the gospel and it says every word against the Son of Man, all that'll be forgiven, right? What this does mean, <clears throat> think about this literal precise context here. The Pharisees have progressed in their hardness of heart to the point to where they know who Jesus is, right? They understand exactly who he is. They can see his work. They know the scriptures. They know who he is. In that settled state, they're saying, that's the devil, right? That's the devil at work. And they know it's not the devil at work, right? But what, what they're doing is they're blaspheming in their heart. They're saying, you know, the work of the Holy Spirit that's going on around Jesus, all these healings, all this stuff that's happening, I want nothing to do with it, right? They're, with full understanding of who Jesus is, they are rejecting him. And that's the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, is when God's work is happening and you're in a settled state of rejecting, Right? So now the question comes up, can I commit this today? There's two camps of thought conservatives have, okay? One of, one of the thoughts is, you know, if you want to stick to exact, precise, literal of this, then no, you couldn't commit this today because why? Right. Jesus isn't here doing works in front of you, and you can't literally say, oh, that's the work of the devil, right? So in that sense, no, you couldn't commit this today. Okay, but there is the sense that you can commit this today because in John, Jesus says that 
the work of the Holy Spirit was God was going to send his Holy Spirit to come and he was going to, what? Three things. Convict the world of sin, convict the world of righteousness, and the judgment to come. Pastor's wife. <laughs> Those are the three things that God said that he sent his Holy Spirit to do, to convict. Let's put it in your own context. Do you remember before you came to Christ and gave your life to him? Maybe you don't. Maybe some of you grew up in the church and, and I don't know. You don't, maybe you won't relate with this, but there's a point to where you start to get convicted of your sin. You start to realize, wow, I thought I was a pretty good person, but man, I'm rotten, you know? If I really want to be honest, you know? That's the Holy Spirit at work. He's convicting you of your sin. Now, what's the second thing he does? Convicts you of righteousness. Wow. You're convicted that there is a standard of holiness, right? I know that there is such thing as purity and goodness and holiness, and I know that I'm not it, (laughs) you know? And also, I know that eventually, someday, this is going to be dealt with. And that's the conviction of the judgment to come. And you know, when you're in that state, when you're under the conviction of the Holy Spirit about those things, you go to Jesus, you know, and that's what the work of the Holy Spirit is to do. Now, that Holy Spirit is working through Jesus in this context, and people are saying, nope, don't want anything to do with Jesus, right? So in that sense, you can commit this today. You could be listening to me here today and in your mind going, nope. And I'll tell you what, your heart's going to get more and more calloused the more that you do it, and you're going to put yourself in a position where you can no longer be forgiven. You know why? Because you won't want it. You won't even care. Your heart will get so callous to the point to where you won't receive forgiveness from the only place it can come. And that's what Jesus is warning about. He's telling them, you, you know, you, because of for whatever reason, you know, you like the money, you like the power, the position of being a Pharisee, you think you're righteous, whatever it is, you want to ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit on your life, you better be careful. There are people today that, you know, they hear a sermon, they hear something, they get a little bit convicted, huh, it steps on their toes a little bit, and then they ignore, they don't do anything about it. And the thing about it is, is the very next week, the same thing could happen, and they don't feel the same conviction anymore. And eventually, you don't feel any conviction because you're calloused, cauterized, you know? There are people that put off giving their life to Jesus Christ. What makes you so sure that you're going to want to give your life to Jesus Christ, Really? I don't know. I, I want to kind of live my life now where I just kind of do whatever. I want to be worldly. I want to do what my friends do. I just want to do, I just want to go with the flow of the world. And God forgives everybody for everything they do, right? So just when I'm done doing this, just one day I'll just get right with God. Really? How can you assume that you'd even want to? Your heart's becoming so calloused that you can't even hear the voice of the Holy Spirit eventually, right? God's Spirit will not always strive with man, That should be a strong warning to you if you're rejecting Jesus Christ here today. You're putting yourself in a position where you're deadening yourself. You might say, yeah, it sounds just like me. I feel dead inside. Well, I'll tell you what. You are deadening yourself inside if you're not responding to the Holy Spirit. So you better get right with the Lord before it's too late for you. There is a point of no return. Verse 33 now. Through 37, Jesus' accusers' words prove the sinful state of their heart. Look at verse 33. He says, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers? How can you. (laughs) He calls them snakes. (laughs) You brood of vipers. How can you, being evil, speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that for every idle word men may speak, they will give an account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That's a heavy section of scripture right there too. He's speaking to the Pharisees and he's saying, make the tree good. Or make, he's like, how can you speak good things? You guys go around and you speak all these religious sounding things. How can you do this? Because in your heart, you're in one breath saying that the work of God is the work of the devil. And in the other one, you're telling people how to live good, holy lives, right? 
make the tree good or make it bad. You know, it's, you ever go up to a tree and, and, you know, you try to get some fruit off of it and then you take a bite out of it and you're like, oh, it's an apple. Oh, wait, there's half a worm in it. And it's all rotten. And then, then you throw up, you know, because it's disgusting. You ever do it's like, that's kind of what the Pharisees were like. They looked religious, but then the more that you hung out with them and started to like hear the words coming out of their mouth and you see how they're actually treating God in the flesh, you say, you might have good words, but your heart is rotten, you know? That's the condition of their hearts. There are people like that today that you talk to them in church on Sunday and they say one thing and then Sunday night they're at their house talking like the world, you know? No difference. Sound just like the world. And you would say to them, make the tree good or make it bad. Show up to church on Sunday, the mess that you really are, so God could heal you. But quit faking it, man, you know, because it, it, you're faking yourself. God sees what's going on in your heart, you know. And God wants to heal the, the sickness of your heart. He wants to heal your language. He wants to heal those perverse desires that you have in your heart, Right? He wants to heal your perversions. He wants to heal your anger. He wants to heal all those things that you so nicely conceal when you get in front of Christians, right? He wants to deliver you from that. Take the mask off. It's okay. That's, that's, we're all a mess, you know? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What's going on in your heart comes out of your mouth eventually, no matter how, how well you can put it, you know. I've got a client that's a psychiatrist, a new client, <laughs> and <laughs> I'm always scanning myself in my email responses to him because I'm like, this guy's probably psychoanalyzing me every time I send any comment to him, you know. I'm, I'm like, he knows what I'm thinking, you know what I mean? It's funny to think about, but, you know, because what's in the heart, that comes out of your mouth, you know. It really does. If your heart is filled with belief in Jesus Christ that he's the son of God and that he saved a wretch like you, I'm going to be able to tell that by listening to how you talk. If you're filled with unbelief, I'm going to be able to tell that too. You know, that's what he says. You're going to, he, where he goes in that last verse there in verse 37, and he says, for by your words you'll be justified or by your words you'll be condemned. It's not that your words are what gets you into heaven. The, the whole context here says your words just are revealing what's in your heart. Right? So you might be thinking right now, wow, I need Jesus Christ to really deal with my heart. And you do. And so do I. Always. I need thee every hour. What do the words of your mouth reveal about your relationship with Jesus? Now, number two, an insistence on a sign. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Wait a minute. I just did all these healings and all these miracles and you said that it was done by the power of the devil and now you say, do a sign. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Verse 39, but he answered them and said, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign and no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So Jesus, give us a sign. I'll tell you what, you're going to get one more sign. And it's going to be the crucifixion and resurrection. That's what you're going to get. And just as Jonah was in the whale three days, the Son of Man's going to be in the earth three days. Now, there's a difference between Jonah and Jesus, right? And it goes on, and I'll tell you. Verse 41. The men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. So he's saying the son of man is like the prophet Jonah in the sense that he's in the belly of the fish. He's in the earth for three days. But here's where Jonah's different. Jonah got out and preached to the Ninevites, which by the way, he's a funny preacher. He didn't even want to go preach to them. God, I don't want to go preach to them because you'll give them grace and mercy. Just burn them. You know, <laughs> what a preacher. Uh, but here's the difference, right? Is even these pagans repented at the preaching of Jonah and these religious people 
won't repent at the preaching of Jesus. And Jesus says, you know what? A greater than Jonah's here. How hard must your heart be when a pagan responds to the preaching more than the religious person does? Right? I fear for people that grew up in church because you guys get to where you've heard this stuff so much that you're not moved by it anymore. You could be just as calloused as, you know, it's a different form of being calloused. You know, when you think everybody else needs to hear this, but not me because I grew up in church, you're calloused, man. You're in the danger zone, right? Even the pagans that Jonah preached to came to repentance when they saw Jonah (laughs) fish guts all over him, acid reflux all over his face, you know. Look at verse 42. Here comes another condemnation. He says, the queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Anybody know her name? Sheba. Good job. Pastor's wife. She's got all the answers over there. Ah. Queen of the south will come, rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. Jesus is a better prophet than Jonah. Jesus is a better king than Solomon. People were coming from miles around to see Solomon's architecture and just all the stuff, all of his servants. They looked at how many servants he had and they were like, dude, you've got to have some serious wisdom to manage this operation. And people, they come there and they go, you know, I didn't even hear the half of this. Solomon was like the wisest, smartest man ever. And uh, so this, this pagan king, queen, comes and looks, you know. And so you see what they're getting at? Look at how these unbelieving pagans respond to, uh, you know, to these signs, these people, this less than prophet and this less than king. Jesus is greater than all these things. And yet the religious people are saying, no, don't want anything to do with you. You know, and this, is, this deserves a little bit of pondering here. Many times outright sinners respond more to the word of God than, than religious people, you know. And I want to say this to you. If you were an outright sinner and then you got saved, you better hold on to that appreciation for the word of God because you can turn into a religious person too. You know, you can turn into a dead person too. Even though God dug you out of the gutter, you can quickly forget about that if you don't keep your heart soft. You can get too familiar with this, especially you that read the Bible and study the Bible all the time. It can just start becoming just intellectual words for you, you know. You need to make sure that you're, you know, soft heart and that you're in the spirit. You're praying, you're asking the Lord to speak to you and to convict you. Verse 43 Now Jesus is going to spell out the danger of rejecting him. But what's interesting in this is this is a different sort of, we're going to to kind of turn the diamond to get a different facet here when it comes to rejecting Jesus, okay? When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through many dry places, or he goes through dry places seeking rest and he finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes out and he takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So shall it be, so shall it also be with this wicked generation. Okay, now Jesus is talking about the demonic realm here a little bit. He's saying if somebody's possessed by a demon, that demon gets cast out of them. If that person doesn't get filled with the Holy Spirit, that demon's coming back with more demonic activity and that person's going to be more jacked up than they were in the beginning, right? And that's typically, you know, how most of us have heard this passage taught. And there's probably, there's truth in that. But the context here is talking about what the Pharisees have done. I want you to look at the word swept in verse 44 and put in order. There's a couple of verbs there, right? He finds it empty, swept, and put in order. The idea is swept and put in order, it has to do with man doing something, right? Sweeping, putting things in order. These Jewish people had swept and put their lives in order through legalism, through following the law, through keeping the law of Moses. They had the sort of religion 
that was about cleaning yourself up through obedience to rules and regulations. That's what Judaism was about. Essentially, it was like, you're a dirty dog, you know, until you follow the law. And then you follow the law, and that's, you know, we clean ourselves up. We sweep up the house. We put everything in order, right? And this is all in the context of him talking to these Pharisees, and he ends it by saying, so shall it be with this wicked generation. He's talking about the Jews. Now, what the Jews did was they had a religion that was very much self-help very much works-based. Now, the self-help approach to righteousness left them off in a worse state than they were. Can you, why? Why would you be in a worse state if you were an incredibly legalistic person thinking that your righteousness came through your impeccable obedience? Why would you be in a worse state? You don't have any need for a savior. You're your own savior, right? There's a couple of ways you can reject God, and you probably find both of them in this church. One way you can reject God is saying, I don't want to be bound by rules. I don't want to have anything to do with that stuff. I'm going to do my own thing, right? I'm going to go be like the prodigal son, and I'm going to go out, and I'm going to, next thing you know, I'll be in the pig pen, and I'm just going to take my dad's inheritance. I'm going to go blow it all. I don't want anything to do with what my mom and dad are telling me, right? That's one way. To reject Jesus is through, I'm going to be my own person. I'm going to be an immoral person. I'm just going to do whatever I want. There's another way to reject Jesus too. Did you know that? It's the way of religion. See, if all I think that Christianity is about is following rules, and if I follow those rules correctly, then God will love me and let me into heaven, I'm being my own savior. You see that? I'm climbing up my own ladder, my own stairway to heaven, and I'm getting there with my own strength. The first rung is, thou shalt not lie. The next one, you know, or thou shalt not have gods before me, right? And I'm climbing the ladder of the Ten Commandments all in my own strength, and I'm earning my way into heaven, right? Does this make sense? There's two ways to avoid God. One is to say, I don't want anything to do with this stuff. I'm just going to follow the lusts and the passions of my body. I'm just going to do whatever I want, right? That's one way to avoid God. The other way to avoid God is avoiding him through religion, they're saying, look, don't talk to me about all that sin stuff and all of that need for a savior and how my heart's wicked and how I'm, I'm a, you know, when I sing Amazing Grace, you saved a wretch like me. I'm not a wretch. I'm a pretty good person. You know, I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I give money to the church. I go to church and I've got this long list of reasons of why God needs to let me into heaven. Listen, if you think God's going to let you into heaven because you do things, you've mistaken this whole thing. You're like this warning right here. You're going to put yourself in a worse state. Here's, here's how this could play out. Somebody gets really convicted. You know, they're living their life. They say, I need to go to church. They start coming to church for a couple of weeks, and they think it's just about rules. And they're like, hey, just show me what to do. Tell me what to do. And they're going to bed every night now, resting on the fact in their mind, I'm going to heaven because I go to church, because I've cleaned my life up. I don't swear like I used to anymore. I don't do drugs. I don't do any of that stuff anymore. Now I'm all good because of what I do. You're avoiding the need for a savior because you're being your own savior. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. It's a lot easier to speak to people that are convicted of their sin about truth and righteousness than it is people that have grown up in church that don't recognize how wicked they are really is. If you don't know the wickedness of your own heart here and the desperate situation that you're in, the desperate need that you have for a savior, you're like these people. Am I filled with the Spirit? Am I dependent on the Holy Spirit to make me more like Jesus? Am I dependent on the work of God to bring me home to heaven? Am I dependent on him transforming me, you know, from strength to strength, making me more into the image of Christ? Is he my strength? Is he the agent of my sanctification? Is he the one making me holy? Is he the one that's working inside of me or is it me cleaning myself up? Am I dependent upon him? Is he my savior? Right? God will change you from the inside out by the work of his Holy Spirit in your life. And for that to happen, what you do is you abide in him. You seek him. You pray to him. You study his word. You get filled with him. You spend time with him.
These guys had a different approach. I'm going to clean myself up from the outside in, and I'm going to make myself righteous, and I'm going to earn my way into heaven through my obedience. And the state of that person is worse than it was at the first. While he was still talking to the multitudes, verse 46, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards his disciples and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, if I was depending on Mary to intercede for me today, I would be really troubled by what this verse says, right? You know, because uh, he's, you know. Now, is Jesus, you get the scene, right? Jesus is preaching and he's teaching his disciples and here comes his family. And when you read Mark's account of this too, you get the idea of why they're there. Does anybody know why they're there? They think Jesus is what? Think he's out of his mind or he's exhausted or something. He's lost it, you know. And so they're there to take him home. Did you know Jesus' own family didn't believe in him, you know, like until after the crucifixion, resurrection? Did you know that? Jesus, can you imagine Jesus' brothers, you know, growing up? Oh, Jesus, you know, he, he never does anything wrong, you know, and whatever. He's the Messiah, you know. But then when they saw him after the resurrection, then they believed in him, right? That's good testimony that the resurrection really happened, right? Because you have people that did not believe in him became devout followers of him. They must have seen something, right? Same thing with Paul. You could put Paul in that category. So they come and they want to take him home because they think he's out of his mind, right? And uh, what Jesus says is pretty interesting. Who are my mother and my brothers, right? Now, he's not being disrespectful. The law tells you... Any good Jew says you need to take care. I mean, you guys know the Ten Commandments, especially you kids. You should honor your mother and your father, right? In fact, in the Old Testament time, if you didn't honor, man, you get stoned to death. <laughs> good thing we lots of stones flying in that day. So what Jesus is doing is he's actually applying the truth, you know, that he said earlier, um, you know, if you love mother or father more than me, you know, you can't be my disciple. And what he's doing is he's proving that there. He's using this as a teaching moment. He's saying, you know what, this Mary might be my mother, blood mother, but you know what, she needs to have the same disciple relationship with me as anybody else does here. And what Jesus is doing is he's totally modeling for you and me what it looks like to put him before family, right? That's what he's doing. And let me make no mistake about it. Jesus has called every one of us to put our relationship with him above any other relationship. Your relationship with Jesus needs to come before your relationship with your kids, before your relationship with your spouse. Jesus has to come first. How do you know if that's happening? Well, when every, how do you evaluate your decisions in life? Are they always made like, I wonder what my family thinks? I wonder what my mom thinks? I wonder what my sister thinks? I wonder what my cousin thinks? I wonder what my husband thinks? Those are important questions, but those should not be how you make every one of your decisions, right? You should make your decision on what does God think, and that should be the number one most important thing when it comes to assessing how you live your life is what does God think, right? God tells me that I got to get up and move to the jungles of Africa to be a missionary. Oh, I don't know. My mom probably wouldn't really like that. I'm not going to do it, okay? Well, then you've failed to apply this, you know? Well, I'm in this relationship with this person that I really like and stuff. And well, but what does God say about it? Well, I don't care. Well, you failed to apply this, right? You get the idea. But Jesus is modeling that for us here. That's what that looks like. Those who follow his word and do the will of his Father in heaven are his brothers and his sisters and his mother and stuff. Isn't that cool? You're part of the family. I love that. Part of Jesus' family. <laughs> You know, some of us, you, you think, well, I don't know if I had a family that even really cared too much about me. Well, this family cares about you. You know, that's a good thing. Jesus loves you. He's brought you in. One more point. It, he, Jesus' mother, he has brothers, right? So the doctrine of the perpetual virginity of Mary, it can't be true if this is true. Can't be true. Both can't be true. Jesus had other brothers. Mary was not a perpetual virgin, virgin and you do not pray to Mary um, hoping that because, you know, she's got such a favor with her son that then her son will listen to your prayers. 
That's why people intercede to Mary is because, of course, the mother can bend the ear of the son, right? Not at all. There's one mediator between man and God, the man Christ Jesus. And you pray to him and you pray to him only. And you do not call anybody father. You call, there's one that is your father, is what the Bible says, right? And he obviously has brothers. So just, I just point that stuff out because I, I want you to understand that that cannot be true and this be true. They both can't be true. So hopefully I'm saying that respectfully. I know some of you come from that sort of background, but I just want to point this stuff out as we go because I'm just about the truth. I, I like what the Word of God says here. I like to take the confusion out of people's walk too, you know. Make it plain, right? Now, let's just conclude here. We'll wrap this up. Do you assess uh, the things uh, in your life, uh, you know, through, you know, what's the top relationship in your life? What's the top priority, right? Another thing to think about, have you become so calloused, you know, that in your rejection of Jesus, you know, if, let me just, I'm going to extend this warning one more time, okay? If you haven't become a real follower of Jesus Christ, the way that he says it works. I want you to realize there's no neutral position. If you think I'm kind of neutral to the whole, this whole thing, and I, but I don't know, those Jesus people, they're crazy. They talk about the word all the time. They're always praying. They're always serving. I don't want to be like them. Listen, you're trying to play the fence, and Jesus says you're against him. Okay? You are definitely against him if that's the state that you're in. Okay? Your heart's going to get so callous that maybe one day you're not even going to give a crap. And that's a bad place for you to be in. Another thing to think about here is, is Christianity just a way for you to kind of clean yourself up through your own behaviors? Because that's not what Christianity is. We're broken, we're dependent, our heart is wickedly sick and sinful above all other things, and we need a Savior. We need a Savior to bring us home. We need Him to transform us from the inside out. The reason we're doing this here the reason we come to church is because we love Jesus. We love him. We love to be with his people. We want to be obedient to him because he says, don't neglect meeting together. He says in his, in his word, I don't even know how many times he gives commands where he says, love one another, serve one another, give one another preference. You have to be part of the body of Christ to do those things. The reason that we do them is because we love him. This is why we're here, right? It's not just a way for me to clean up my life and to make myself acceptable. Man wants to try to make himself acceptable. You know, deep down, we all feel flawed and broken and we all feel worthless and we all feel like we should die and we all feel terrible about ourselves. All of us do deep down. That's, we all know something's wrong, right? And so we're all perpetually trying to make ourselves feel better through our, either through running from God or either through trying to be super religious and obedient. We're always trying to run from God. He came to take all that away, to cover you in his love. You're in him. It's your identities. You're in him. So next week, we get into my, some of my favorite stuff, man, the parables. Love the parables. So read ahead, chapter 13. Chapter 13.